Welcome to Conservation Today. We interview people about our environment in Douglas County. I'm your host, Frances Etherington. This is part two of our conversation with Shannon Applegate in Yonkala at the Applegate House, built by Shannon's ancestors in 1852 and still occupied by the Applegate family. We are also talking with Christopher Ruiz, University of Oregon anthropologist, about his research on the Applegate grounds. Chris works with the Museum of Natural and Cultural History. Welcome, Chris and Shannon. Chris, you have been doing some archaeology work here at the Applegate House. Yes, I think we've uh, been doing work um, going back to 2012, where we had a historic preservation class. And um, so we had some students out here to do some projects and learn, you know, about archaeology because, uh, you know, historic preservation folks will work on old houses, but they often don't think about the archaeology. So Liz Carter and I uh, were teaching this course in the historic preservation program. It was kind of, uh, you know... um, we co-taught this course, and it was to introduce preservation students to archaeology and the intersection of archaeology and historic preservation. And we looked at two properties. One was a house up in Corvallis, and the other was uh, the Applegate House and all the thinking about all the potential for archaeology here, which is pretty tremendous. How long have you been working here? At uh, U of O? No, here at the Applegate House. Uh, I think since 2012, I think. Maybe a little before that. So. And have you found wonderful things? Yes, we found wonderful things. <laughs> um, What's the most wonderful thing that you that made you the most excited? Uh, you know... And you can answer this question too, Shannon. Which I, I mean, you know, there, we, you know, we found, some, like this last, um, in September, we found some writing slate, okay. you know, from an old slate board, you know, where... Children would do their letters. Instead of paper, they wrote on slate. Yeah, and it had lines on it, and you could maybe make out a faint where there was a letter there. I mean, just tiny fragments, but it gets your your imagination going about, you know, that was a family member's writing slate. And and the Applegates had about, what, 20 children here? Yeah, well, (laughs) they had, altogether there were 38 children in the three Applegate families, and they did attend school um, over on this this place, on the Charles and Melinda Applegate place. Wow. So we don't, it's not that that was necessarily a schoolhouse building, but it could well have been, uh, we have this quest for the claim cabin. And wasn't that in that area? Yeah, that we, we, we hope is maybe yeah. in the area of the cabin. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, that was that was pretty neat. <laughs> and that is right next door, right over here. Is that where you found that? Yeah, it's to the uh, west of the the, the, the main, main house. house. Yeah, in the field there. Yeah, it looks like a field now, but you know there is probably buildings out there and um, all sorts of stuff. So one of the features that we're curious about is the spring. Uh-huh. There's a spring side out there. Perhaps when you came to visit, I did. Your side. I saw it looked like a big hole in yes, the ground. Yes, yes, and it has um, sandstone on the sides. The sandstone that we know was quarried in the hills back here, and then at the bottom. How deep do you think it is, Chris? As uh, it is now. Uh, as it is now. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, I don't know, a couple feet? Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. How did they find a spring in the middle of the field that they had to dig out and put in quarry stones? I mean, what made them go to that spot? Maybe they saw, you know, like plants and, you know, animals attracted, and, you know. I don't know, you might ha have a better well, idea. That's a, actually, that's an excellent question, isn't it? Yeah. But, you know, here's, here's the thing that's so intriguing to, to us about it is that where it's pretty likely that um, Native people also used that spring, oh, where I that see. seems to be, um, I think, you could say proven. I mean, why else would you find all of the right. debitage in the Absolutely. field and so forth? So, yeah. so it was a resource for Native people. And um, so perhaps it, ha it was already dug a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Could have been, or they could have, as Chris says, just seen the the um, change in the vegetation there and so forth. But it was, of course, an important part of a settler wanted to have a spring with with uh, good water, and so did native people. Because there was no perennial stream near the house. Well, there was a perennial stream, and this is interesting too. But um, now it's a seasonal stream. But at one point it was fish bearing. Wow! Even, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was in the in in the sixties. I had relatives who talked about it being fish bearing, and then in the sixties when they were doing initial looks uh, in the streams around here, they had they there there were some fish in the stream. But it, now it is purely a seasonal stream. I wonder what changed it. Logging. I, I think it might have been the logging. Yeah. Because the lo all of these hills have been logged. Yeah. Um, we're getting, you know, this is uh, young, very young second growth up here. Mm -hmm. They logged it in the 60s and the 70s. But but back then, uh, Native people, what do you think? Oh, how long, how, yeah. how I mean, much time? Saying, yeah. How far back? It yeah. Goes? Well, that's interesting because we had, um, you know, f uh, chipstones for making tools and uh, an an actual scraper that might have been used for, you know, cleaning hide or something. Um, that was found really deep, um, almost a meter down. So that, that probably goes back a long ways. And that was found near the spring? Well, it was found in the field, so uh -huh. between the house and the spring. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah, that was, that was interesting. We were pretty surprised to see how, how deep some of the archaeology goes here. Wow. So it's like we have a, this story that we want to tell with the old house. And if you have a chance to talk to Esther Sussman, which I think you are going to do at some point. Yes. Mm -hmm. But we've always called it two-way seeing, the idea being that we want to present a glimpse into the past that reflects how Native people uh, encountered this place and how they used it and what they might have left as evidence, as well as how settlers saw it and the changes that were made in the place as a result of settlement patterns and so on. The lucky thing about that West Field is that my great-great-grandfather had a horror of plowing. <laughs> he did not believe that you should tear up the sod Oh, good for him. And he, and so as a consequence, <laughs> it's not quite as... Oh, yeah, it's not um, disturbed. And, disturbed. Yeah. In that, in. Normally, 
the other settlers would plow it to plant crops as opposed to grazing, which happens now. They don't plow it now. They just graze it or grow grapes these days. Right. Oh, here in the, the area? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of the settlers would have plowed their fields. And planted and, what? Well, I, I don't know about down here. I mean, you know, up in you know, wheat, and I think they did... They did have oats. They did plant oats here. Oats. Uh huh. But not in, not down here. They planted them up, up away behind our place. And so the oats would have been for human consumption or no, for their no, livestock. For horses, I'm sure. Horses. And so, how how much longer you've been working here since 2012? Yeah. And you're going to be here forever. Don't ever leave. Right? I, I really don't want to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you know, this these were kind of projects that. Um, you know, as resources, we had the availability of resources. We'd do a project and, or an idea of like, oh, we can do this. Like, so we we started out with the the um, HP classes and the historic preservation classes, mainly with graduate students. And then we went, oh, well, there's something. You know, we got to dig some holes and see that there was some stuff in the ground out in the field, and that was exciting because you know that's. Like, oh, there's a site here. And so we, we thought about what kind of stuff we wanted to do, like find the clam cabin. And so we decided the next step would be um, we do GPR, which is ground penetrating radar, which oh. is a, a device that allows you to look under the ground and see if there's anything buried. So we um, um, Aha, applied for a, a heritage grant. It was a heritage grant, right? Several, yeah. Actually, we, we, we eventually raised $26,000, which was hard because we're just a little organization. Applegate House Heritage Arts and Education, aha, is yeah. the, the acronym for that. And, um, yeah, with a heritage grant, we had some support from um, two tribes, yeah. Which was uh, wonderful, the Cow Creek and the Kus Loramqua and Sayusla, um, and other granting agencies and individuals who sent checks for $300, $400. And, and so we managed to get enough for one season's dig, yeah. which just we've just had. Yeah. And is that after the ground penetrating survey was done? Is that done with a drone? No, it's it's um, done with a you know it's a device uh, that's uh, pushed by an operator on the gr- oh, they they have okay. to travel on the ground. I see. And um, so you, you know you get to you you get these results back that can you know sometimes they're pretty confusing, but some <laughs> the the expert can decipher them and go okay there there's some sort of compacted surface here I see. that might be a that's place. square that's got yeah. corners yeah. or something yeah. well we never saw anything that <laughs> like like here's a house <laughs> or <a> cabin <laughs> yeah but but there there was areas that definitely looked like we wanted to explore further so um, so we got those results back and then um, then we um, got the money together to, to do the excavation. We had mag- a magnetometer. Oh, we did a magnetometer, right? Mag- yeah. Magnetometer. And that, mag- magnetometer. And that's... Uh, that's kind of a different device. Uh, does remote sensing as well. It allows you to look under the ground, but it's instead of looking at different densities of material, it's looking at changes in the magnetic uh, field. How do th- humans change that? 
how, well, did, how did old pioneer families change the magnetic of the ground? Good question. So um, even building a fire will realign the magnetic uh, particles in, a, in a, a stone so they'll orient to true north and the surrounding matrix won't have been, you know, fired like that so it will stand out against the background. Of course, metal, <laughs> like nails and oh, you know, right. old chains and plow parts will mm. also, you know, show up. So we're using that mainly to look for, for what we call features that would be things that that aren't really movable, like a house foundation or a hearth or, so or a, a canvas oven. So you're looking for the, you call it a few times, the claim cabin. Yeah. Is that like the original cabin that was built here and the Applegate house wasn't the original house? Yeah, that's right. The claim cabin was first, right? <clears throat> yes. And, and that's what they lived in for... A couple of years, three years. And, and that's how they uh, claimed the donation land claim? Yes. With that cabin? You had to build uh, cabins of a certain type, or at least a, you know, a structure that was livable, in order to get a donation land claim. Um, I think the donation land claim is worth saying something about. Um, well, let me ask you this. Before you go on to that, have you found the location of the claim cabin? Um, nothing definitive yet. We have some results that we want to do some more work on to, mm -hmm. to see if they, it turns out to be the cabin location. Mm -hmm. So we, we don't have that definitive element like a, you know, a, the base of a hearth, which would be like, you know, where the chimney was. That would have been, that would be <laughs> we, nice to find um, well, would a claim cabin have a hearth in it? Well, we think so, based on the, uh, yeah. yeah. We think so. Yeah. How else would they keep warm? Yeah. yeah. Because this, because sandstone is one of the materials that was available here, as I mentioned, it was in the spring. There were steps leading yeah. down out of sandstone in the old house itself, uh, which was started in 1852 and finished in 1856. <coughs> The two fireplaces that are there have hearths that are obviously made out of this native sandstone. Mm -hmm. and they use sandstone also in the uh, foundation. Mm -hmm. So it seems yeah, likely that they, that they would have had a, a hearthstone or something like that. That'd be great to find. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But one of the intriguing things is that you know, there's a whole difficulty in, in West Side archaeology and the fact that these... Cabins obviously were wood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wood in a moist environment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the thing that first alerted um, the people who were digging, who were, by the way, from the, uh, from the university, but also from the Oregon Archaeology Society, there were volunteers who've been trained to do this. Now we hear a choking song on the tape <laughs> while Chris drinks my coffee. Do you want sugar in it? <laughs> Joking? Why, man? It was, you want a little sugar? It was really good. Oh, okay, good. It's okay. it's wonderful. Oh, well, that's <laughs> oh because good. because you think you're coffee. I was really heavy and no heavy and uh, anyway. Well, while but, Chris drinks his coffee, we're going to take a break. When we return, we will continue to talk with Chris Ruiz and Shannon Applegate about the archaeological dig at the Applegate House in Yonkala. 
This is Conservation Today, and I'm your host, Francis Etherington. We are back talking with Christopher Ruiz, archaeology from the archaeologist from the University of Oregon, and Shannon Applegate about the dig at the Applegate House. So, Shannon, what did you find from the settlers' cabin? Found was this compaction. Is that the right word for it? Yeah, it was like, like, a, like a, a pavement com- almost. Yeah, yeah, like a really uh, like um, you know like a tamped earth floor or something. Mm-hmm. We don't know if that's what it is, but it was the you could feel it when you were digging you kind of going down through the soil and it's easy to dig and then dink you know you'd hit this this soil and you could kind of uh use your trowel across it and it would it, there was this difference of texture. So So they probably did have a dirt floor. I mean, I would imagine milled wood would be extremely difficult to well, use. And if you did, you won't put it on a floor. They might have had punchant, you know, logs that were cut on the tops. Yeah. There could be, there, there are some possibilities of coverings, but they too, of course, would have disintegrated by now. But what was underneath it would not have, which would be the, yeah. the, like packed, the surface. packed surface. Yeah. So that was really exciting, you know. The thing about it is... Um, it had no hearth. No hearth yet. No, it had to no hearth. You have to have hearth, Francis. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have hearth. <laughs> um, so, what it, what the challenge is is we're just a little organization, and so we're trying to to get some help. We hope from the Lane County Historical Society to uh, help us do another season. And but here was the thing that was really uh, interesting. Um, at one point, while the digging was going on, we had high school students who were involved and other students. And there were two kids from the Indian Ed uh, program here who were digging with a man named Kevin Wright, who was, Kevin Wright, yeah. who was a Klamath man. And they were thrilled to be with this fine Native person who doing this. And they were actually at, at a place that it looked like it might be uh, a Native site. Yeah. Because they, they had found... Things there. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. different things. Yeah. And Tom Halfordy, who was one of our folks digging uh, as a volunteer, is also the great great grandson of Oliver Cromwell Applegate. And so he was there and he was talking to Kevin. And as he's talking to this Klamath Indian man, and they're relating their relatives, their begets and their begots, you know. and they're talking about um, how Oliver Cromwell Applegate went to help get pensions for the wives of uh, Indian men who had been uh, helping in the Modoc War. And he went to make sure that these wives were treated respectfully and that they got the pensions they deserved. And Kevin said, I'm pretty sure my my great-great-grandmother was one of those women who got one of those pens. So here are these, gener- all these generations later, yeah. here are these two men with these high school kids, and, and they're standing in the field of this. I mean, it was so touching. It's everything that you would want in a situation like that because it's an archaeological dig, but it's also meaning about being connected, connected to a place, culturally connected. 
And we always like to talk about two-way seeing this idea of Native people and Indian people, and settlers. And so there it was. It's kind of embodied in that in that moment. And it's what makes us who we are today is what happened yes. back in there, you know. Yes. We're very connected. So we're hoping that we'll get enough funds together so that... Uh, Kevin was only here for a day or so, and we'd and we'd like to have him be one of our folks, you know, to to work. And so, where uh, when you do get the funds, what will you do with it? Where are you going to dig at? Um, Chris has some ideas about that. Uh, well, I think we'll probably um, do more work around that that area where we found that compact mm -hmm. surface, um, and um, that's one area we want to explore a lot more. Because we only had, you know, uh, a limited amount of holes there, and we weren't able to really explore it thoroughly. And archaeology is uh, it's meticulous work. You know, it, it takes a long time to to really you you go layer by layer, and often with trowels, and you're you know you don't get to. Um, you know, explore. You might spend a lot of days, but you haven't, um, you know, opened that many holes. So we, we'd like to do some more of that. And then down by the spring, I think we can. Yeah. Um, there's some interest in seeing if we can see if there's any remains of a. The, there was a spring house, obviously. So a building yes, over the spring. spring. Oh, house. I see. Yeah. Were there any burial grounds that you have found on this? No. no. This is a. This is an interesting thing because we we um, we worked hard with uh, the native people of different tribes ar around the issue of being sure that we were not disturbing anything which anyone would feel uh, and the law we have very strong uh, regulations and laws rightfully so here and the thing that's interesting is that. Um, First of all, it's a it's it's a wetland pretty much out in that field. It's much, it's a slightly elevated mm -hmm. uh, spot, but it isn't a place that would be too likely. Native people did not right. bury people in wetlands. They yeah. had much, as Esther says indignantly. Of course, we had much better sense than to put <laughs> our burial spots in in wetlands, right? Um, but. Uh, so no, there, there's no, no, there, there's nothing that. that what, what, plus, we did all the preliminary work with the with the, the lidar, the radar, the yeah. magnometer, the. And you so. would have spotted something there if there had been. What about what yeah. about latrines? Well, there's probably one out there somewhere. Or more. Yeah, yeah. Or more. It'd be. I'm sure there. I'm sure there are, and that's something. But we think it. it these are things that will will uh, get revealed, perhaps, on this next go round. You know, I didn't really recognize the fact that archaeologists tend to work in seasons. Mm -hmm. You know, and then they go back and the reporting and all of the things that that are really incredibly complex. Yeah, we had a lab tech here, a wonderful woman, um, Julia Knowles. Julia Knowles who did a lot of the work on site, because we have a classroom here, so she was doing a lot of the identification. Yeah. But she still had incredible things to do back in the lab. <laughs> I went to visit, Daniel and I went to visit the lab, and it is extraordinary. There were 1,066 um, artifacts. Yeah, 
from here. Uh huh. Wow. Varying sizes, some some very small, and uh, but others larger. And she was doing things like treating metal pieces, so uh, against corrosion. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we, we do various types of metal conservation because metal will start breaking down pretty rapidly once you take it out of the ground. And um, we don't do it to everything because some things are, you know, uh, kind of a, a piece of rusted metal that you can't... It's just a kind of fragment of a bigger piece and it's hard to say much about it. But um, some of the bigger pieces will we'll get metal conservation. There was some... Um, Probably uh, items that were made by a blacksmith, like uh, wall hooks that oh, are going to... My great-great-granddaddy, who was a blacksmith. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, we, we get lots and lots of nails. Hundreds of nails. So not all of those are will get... square nails? Yeah. Well, what we call, yeah, cut nails. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think we might have one hand-forged nail, so that would have been made by a blacksmith. But the machine-cut nails were... You know, made in a factory. They were cut and bought. On a yeah, and bought. I see. And so, um, and we have we have lots of those. And very we'll, early, though. Yeah, we're they are. They're very early. They like are. Eighteen seventies, sixties. How are they different than today's nails I buy? Well, the ones you buy today are probably what uh, they're made from a wire strand and then headed. Um, and so they're these are you know rectangular in cross section. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, so what you call square nails. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so lots of those. Um, we won't treat all of them because there's a lot of them. <laughs> but but we will, you know, hand select the, the nice examples and, and stabilize them. So we do stabilization, lots of cleaning. So every artifact is cleaned up yeah. so it, yeah. you can see what it is. There was a lucky find of um, the bottom of... A plate or a cup. Yeah. And the interesting thing was it happened to be the fragment that had the, the maker's mark wow. on it exactly. Yeah. And so she was able, to, uh, Julia was able to identify that that was a particular year when this particular ceramic from England, it was very early. I think I'm right. It was 1862 or something. It came, yes, that's, it yeah. came from England. Yeah, it came from England. Yeah, that was, um, that was, uh, England was where a lot of the, you know, your household's tableware, your plates and bowls and cups. And they bought this stuff here in the United States, but it was imported from England. Yeah, yeah. Because we didn't produce that stuff yet. Yeah, uh, on a, to a limited degree, and a little later, but, um, but yeah, it wasn't that, if a lot of the, you see a lot of English made ceramics at archaeological sites in the 1850s, 1860s. One of the things that um, that we would like to do is to solve a mystery uh, about the things that are, exist in the field, uh, that are the native materials that we're finding. And, um, and this is why. You know, the diseases that came through, um, malaria especially, um, and and it's called endemic malaria, meant a shift in the use of the marshy lands for Native people. And 
the abandonment of areas that was due to a big, big population decline. Mm -hmm. And this happened um, in the 1820s and very early, right? So that we're looking at, like for example, for the Kalapuya, the smallpox epidemics, we're actually circa 1775, and then again wow. in 1801 and 1802. The population had been 9,000 people in 1805 and 1806, but it was only 600 in 1841. So well, that's before this place was exactly, even settled. Exactly. So the contact, the contact here. Um, in this part of Douglas County and along what we think of as 99 and, and uh, other, there are other roadways that were trapper routes. And so the, con the contact was intermittent. And we know that for 20 years, sometime in, the, in this period, the Kalapuya were relatively untouched because uh, they, particularly down here, because Esther's people, this was the southernmost uh, placement of the Kalapuya people, okay? All the other tribes then began at that time, or what we today call tribes. Um, but starting in 1831, and each summer after that, there were malaria epidemics. Malaria. Malaria. Just people don't realize that it was malaria. That's that. They get it from a mosquito. Yes, and from sailors and shipwrecks and stuff. And it moved all the way down through the Sacramento Valley into into California. I mean, this this was. We think about smallpox. We think about measles. We think about other things that have affected Native people. But that was a huge thing. So, so how? What are the? What is the age then of those artifacts that we're finding in the field down there? That are how deep did you say, Chris? Well, so I think we found stuff down to a meter, okay. one meter deep. Okay, so that we can, and we know we have uh, examples of mortars and pestles and different things in the house that I, my ancestors found, uh, you know, surf, essentially surface kind of finds. Um, so it's, it's possible we're dealing with a couple of different populations of people. Uh, I mean, by that, Esther says that according to her information, that, that her tribe, this part of the Kalapuya that's here, has only been here between 300 and 600 years. So who belonged to all of those who used that spring out there in the field? How old is an artifact three meters deep? I don't know. Yeah. It's not three meters. We haven't gone that deep yet. Oh, it's... <laughs> <laughs> One meter. One meter deep. Yeah. And so, is that a thousand years old or is it hundreds of years old? Yeah, maybe hundreds. Or it might, you know, we, we don't know the, the rate of the, you know, sediment accumulation yet. So, you know. But we might know that. Right, the, of sediment accumulation. Can we learn that? I think. Well, you might be able to, you know, do some, you know, further studies. We can, we can help work that out. Huh. Um, or maybe, you know, we we just don't know why we're getting stuff that deep yet. So uh, maybe what? we're we were in kind of a depression. So you know. In um, other words, the depth of it isn't the sure way to tell the age of it. 
the stratigraphy doesn't necessarily tell you the age. I would say, um, you know, one one window into the grounds, not enough to to know how it yeah. how everything relates across the site, and if yeah. you know, huh. we could have been in a you know a, like a pit house or something, and you know, I I don't yeah. know, um, yeah, or you know, some depression where I things see. accumulated. But it, what it, I think it tells you is, you know, um, we had another unit where something we found stuff at 70 centimeters. So, you know, a little, you know, 30 centimeters above that. So there's stuff that is pretty deep there. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, hundred, so it's likely hundreds of years. Yeah, hundreds so. of years. Okay, well, we're going to take another break. When we return, we will continue to talk with Chris Ruiz and Shannon Applegate about what the archaeological dig has found at the Applegate House. This is Conservation Today, and I am your host, Francis Etherington. This is Conservation Today. We are back talking with Chris Ruiz, archaeologist from the University of Oregon, and Shannon Applegate about the Native American finds at the Applegate Archaeological Dig. What tribes left these artifacts? And some fascinating things have come from that, as I understand. Pieces of obsidian, things, uh, and so forth in different locations. And, of course, this is we're not anywhere near the obsidian, right, as far as I know, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So, and the thing that we found right in, in this place were three stones or four stones. We found some... Oh yeah, the yeah, like brown stones that were they look like they had been, you know, had been heat affected so they, you know, had were discolored and um and you know, they were kind of isolated. There's not very, oh, yeah, there's very no isolated. stone out there. Mm-hmm. So they they would have been transported and placed there but by a person. Hand carried. Obsidian. You didn't find obsidian or no. you did? Well, no, I think no. we had some obsidian. Oh, actually, we did. There, yeah. were, there yeah. was some obsidian. There's some obsidian there. So, From yeah. trade. Yeah, it would have been trade. So this suggests, um, this suggests that there was quite a lot of activity in this particular field, and one can just assume that it had something to do with the availability of good water of the spring. You know, attracted both peoples. You know, I want to go back a minute to the disease that you were talking about, the yeah. smallpox, when the Kalapuya population plummeted because mm-hmm. of smallpox. Yet and malaria. And malaria. Yeah. But yet that was before the Applegate settlement here. And so did they just, did some Native American run across some European descendant that had smallpox and and then and that how did it how did it transmit yeah I mean if some guy had smallpox I don't think he'd be walking around in the wilderness meeting native <laughs> but as I understand it it is carried on um, materials blankets and 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 other things that yeah. it's possible contagion is possible that way and there were you know pretty um, Indeed, intermittent, but there were intermittent in the sense that maybe trappers only came a season or so, right, or once or twice a season. But there were numerous trappers, and this is where this particular our location here. We know that there were trappers' trails not far from here. Old ninety nine was essentially mm-hmm. in this neck of the woods, an old mm-hmm. trappers' route. So, um, and there's a 
fascinating uh, story about uh, uh, much earlier white contact with this individual called Squeal Winoof, who was uh, thought to be a black robe as as the story came down. And these, this is something that Kalapuya people told Komema people, which is a tribal name for, or the name of the people who were here, Komema of the Kalapuya. The Komema people told Jesse Applegate that there had been this, this medicine man here. They had given him the name Squiwinuf, right? So who was he? He was, yeah. you know, so, so, there, so that suggests that while they had a certain amount of isolation, there was some um, back and forth, in maybe from the 1820s, 1830s on. But by the time the Applegates came and settled here, yeah, the population had already been diminished with mm-hmm. smallpox. That was sort of over. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, I think I'm correct about this. With that, when the missionaries started coming up, Jason Lee and the crew, the Methodist missionaries. They were amazed and dismayed that there were hardly any Native people to um, missionize, if that's the right word, to convert. Yeah. And that there were empty, there are descriptions like on Saugus Island of of deserted, long deserted uh, homes, uh, the plank houses and other places, and bones. So that's Jason Lee's eighteen, I think, eighteen thirty-two. Mm-hmm. So we, so yes, it, it still had to do with European contact, but it wasn't the wagon trains of settlers. Such a sad story. Yeah, indeed. The other thing I hope that we could have a conversation about sometime is. Uh, the changes in the environment, in the species that were here, and the way things look, some things that we know ab- about all of that, right here, as they would say in Chinook jargon, right here, um, because I think that's intriguing. Now, these are changes in the environment that you've been able to document through yes. this dig and through well, other through, through, historical Through papers. documentation of the yeah. letters and, and interviews and certain things. And, and was this, um, did you talk about this in, in your book, Skookum? No, because I didn't know these things then. I wrote Skookum, uh, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s. And um, I think, I'm, I'm glad that I wrote about the women and the children because it was a thing that had not been done to that time. There were very few women, Western historians, for one thing. And so to be writing from the perspective of women and children was a different thing to do. And the, in, in that, um, it, it, I have had people that, that, at the time who felt that it was you know, kind of groundbreaking, actually, that approach. But the thing that I didn't have um, the capacity or the knowledge at that time to really explore that I have later become interested and involved in um, is the physical environment. And I had some interesting um, anecdotes, such as that Melinda made a sweater out of wolf hair. Wow. Wow. And um, I knew that, you know, and I knew that uh, that 
that actually they got the idea from Native women that they had seen in the Columbia and so on who were using dog hair. Uh-huh. And so when they began killing wolves for bounty, mm-hmm. and when the Applegates had first settled in the upper part of the Willamette, then they, blah, blah, they, they, they used whatever was at hand, yeah. you know. And, and so she knit a sweater for great-great-granddaddy out of, out of wolf hair. What was the bounty for wolf? Um, the bounty for wolf is you could get a you could get five dollars for a really big one. That was quite an incentive, right? That was offered. This was, of course, before there was any real actual currency here. I don't I don't think they were doing beaver coin. I don't know how they how they did the transaction, right? Because this is well before this had become a state or even a territory. So. So that's intriguing. But the other thing is, and Esther and I were talking about this the other day, um, there were condors here. Yes. Yeah. Jesse Applegate and his daughter Roselle found the skeleton of uh, an immense, they didn't know what it was. They called it um, a buzzard. Um, and but it had a nine feet wingspan, maybe more. It was big, huge, nine and they were feet. just stunned because Jesse had not seen an, an actual condor in flight because he were up here in Oregon, and at that time, we could be fairly confident that there were very few condor around. But so, where were those condor nesting? Were that the same places where that sandstone out the sandstone wow. outcroppings were? How far condors need a certain um, distance, right? Wow. You know what I want to say. Um, as a pileated woodpecker needs a square mile, how much does a condor need? I don't know. I don't know either. Um, but yeah, and so like today, our turkey buzzards live in. Uh, I live underneath the Callahan Ridge where there's a bunch of little sandstone caves and stuff, you know, and they really like to populate those caves. And I imagine the condors might have liked a similar habitat. And so when was the condors' um, bones found? When was that? Well, we're looking at 1850. My source would be Roselle Applegate Putnam's letters. And so they found the bones, but they never saw a condor? They never saw it flying. So... When when so the condors were gone by the time the Applegates came. Well, there? apparently, nobody nobody is. Uh, 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 I'm unaware of records that reported seeing them in flight here. I'm being very local about this. Well, why would they have gone? I mean, there's no white European. Esther seemed to think there was or is was, but I'm not sure why. Huh. I don't know why. Well, ex- except. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. That's something to ask her. But here's another story. And again, I knew this story when I wrote Skookum, but I didn't understand what it meant. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Suddenly you get, you, you have this, oh my God. Charlie Applegate, great-great-granddaddy, raised sheep. He was one of the first people to raise sheep in this part of the world. Unfortunately, he raised merinos, which were sheep from Spain, and they had very long fur. Well, what you can imagine, hair, not fur. (laughs) And you can imagine what that would have been like to an animal living in this wet climate. 
Oh, right? Yes. That they foundered. They were, you know, this was not a good choice of a, of a breed. And they didn't uh, have uh, electric shears at that's that That's right. They yeah. certainly didn't. The men would have a few too many and clip by hand with hand clippers. There's stories about that. Anyway, but the, the, but the, the thing is, the eagles were so numerous and plentiful that they preyed on the lambs. Oh, wow. And so... The, the, take this back to the archaeology conversation. Perhaps the owner of that slate piece that we found yeah. could easily have been Jane Applegate or Harriet or one of the girls mm. who would have been doing her letters at that point. Um, when she grew up to get married, her brothers decided that they would pluck the down from the eagles that they had shot and put it in a wedding quilt. Imagine that. Yeah. An eagle down quilt. Oh my God. That tells you something, in, you know, about species, numbers of species. Here's another one. There's this wonderful description about one of the first meals that Jesse Applegate served in the Umpqua to his brother Charlie and Melinda. And he, it's described um, quite in detail. Things like meadowlark pie, um, cress from the from the creek, watercress from the creek. They were all they, the women were herbalists. They knew what they were doing about that kind of thing. They made good use of the natural resources here. But here is the interesting one: um, freshwater oysters. I'm sure. They're the mussels, like the river mussels that they're discovering in the Willamette and River and in so many other places. You know, these big mussels that they, I just saw something on Oregon Experience or Oregon Field Guide about, about doing um, a uh, census of the, of the mussel population. And some of these mussels are the size of a, of a, hand, a man's hand. And they're the old guys. They're, they're like 50 or whatever. But uh, they were certainly eating some sort of shellfish out of the creek, out of Elk Creek, which was then called Elk River. Um, but this, this is unbelievable. Yes, how things have changed. Yeah, and so that would be something to, you know, I like to think about the encounter with this place on these very physical terms and the clues that might be remaining in those thousands of letters that I sifted through. And I think I did a good job. I'm not saying that, but I didn't, I wasn't looking for these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking of revisiting those? Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> I'm 74. How many more big books do I have in me? I don't know. Well, you could just be a sequel. A, se just a sequel to Skookum. <laughs> Skookum 2. <laughs> but you also wrote Talking on Paper. Yeah. And um, you traveled around the state of Oregon gathering information about this publication. What was that publication? Well, uh, the, the Oregon Literature Series was uh, a collection of six volumes of every genre of Oregon literature. Okay, and so that included um, poetry, uh, folklore, uh, fiction, short fiction, 
and so on, and letters and diaries. And so I had the privilege of being the um, co-editor for collecting and interpreting uh, and writing essays about the letters and diaries that we found. And so I went after primary sources. I had an old kind of fuddy-duddy co-editor. He was a lot older than I, and he went next door to the Oregon Historical Society and took things out of books. And I thought, I want to do the democratic, this is a democratic form of literature, letters and diaries, and I'm apt to find the voices of women and children and minorities if I go after them. So I did. So I I had a Dodge Caravan, and I had a Xerox machine, and 100 feet (laughs) of extension cord. Wow. And I traveled 10,000 miles in the state of Oregon, and over a period of about three years. And I found some wonderful material. And I'd pull up to the ranch house or wherever it'd be. I mean, I'm talking way out there, <laughs> like Clover Flats, which is outside of, um, which is outside of where they have the Mosquito Festival, the little town where they have Paisley. Oh, it's yeah. outside of Paisley. That's a long way. Yeah. And I'd pull up and they'd say, well, I've got some great letters from my great-grandmother. She was a rancher. She was a rancher just like a man. She could ranch. <laughs> and I'd say, well, I'd love to see those letters. And they'd say, oh, well, I don't, I don't want to hand them to this letter. And I'd say, no problem. I have a Xerox machine in my van. <laughs> you let me plug it in, and I can copy these letters. You know? Nice. So, so that, anyway, that's what I did. I haven't read that. It would be fascinating to read. And then you actually talk to the actual descendants of the people you gathered the letters from. Often. I mean, and sometimes it would be in, you know, in in old little libraries and things too. But I I met a lot of individuals who had things in their family collections. I actually had a Chautauqua program for years called Stalking the Wild Diary. Stalking Wild Diary. And actually, I I came across all of these Chautauqua programs that I've still got. There were slideshows mm-hmm. and uh, um, Hope Springs Eternal, the history of spas and mineral springs in Oregon, uh, Making Do a Trail's End, War in the Woods, which was about the Wobblies and some of the things that formed the basis for my new book, Minus Tides. Um, Stalking the Wild Diary. Well, we need to um, get those on the web. I have no idea how to do that. And they're um, slideshows, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've got the written... With all the cards, all the written material. Because you, you can see how I wander off. Oh, really? So I had to write it down so I wouldn't wander <laughs> off. It'd be easy enough just to uh, bring a scanner over and scan and digitize the slides. They're still in their carousels in order. Yeah. I wish I had a graduate assistant or two to just help me with my papers and stuff, but I don't know that. Well, you're just a wealth of information on historical stuff. You used to work at the uh, museum. Well, actually, I I was one of the founders of the Bandon Historical Society Museum. In the in with Skookum, I did about a hundred oral interviews. And have, have those been digitized? Hopefully, over in Bandon. It's hard to say. There have been changes in staff and people, but a lot of the photographs and things that I collected in my stint there are still, they're still using them. It's been a uh, rich experience. Not financially. <laughs> <laughs> However, you know, um, but, but, uh, but in other ways. I mean, I feel so grateful. 
you know, and I'm still, I was just telling Francis that I'm working on this trunk that I inherited from yes. the vaudeville, from oh. the vaudevillian in the family who was also a female impersonator in vaudeville and did many. Yeah. Any. You're working on, like you're cataloging the content? Yes, I've, and Xeroxing and or, or copying the letters and the oh. reviews of this man and uh, he's an extraordinary person. His name is Harry Clinton Sawyer. Yeah. And I can't quite figure out, you know, how that, what that, what will that be? He he, he appears in one of the pictures to be a female impersonator. Yeah. And uh, what year was that picture taken in about? I, it must have been like 1902. 1902. Uh-huh. Yes. And this is, and how is he related to you? He is... Um, Gus and Hazel, whose room is down there in the old house with uh-huh. all of the paraphernalia, you know, they were the trick shooters. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Gus's half-brother. Gus was a man's man, da-da, <laughs> da-da. And uh, Harry Clinton, sorry, was his brother who loved Gus and who just was so supportive of him. And he was a vaudeville entertainer. And he tried, it was all over the United States. And to have a trunk, about the actual trunk, his trunk is really something, because some of his costumes are in it. So did Harry ever live here? Or? He visited here. He oh. visited Gus and his mom here. Okay. But he, uh, but he did a lot of vaudeville work in Oregon. Oh, okay. But also all over the United States. <laughs> yeah. All over. And we even had the schedule of his train trips across... <laughs> Country is Did he live into book. an older age? I mean, sometimes no, those folks... he died in his 40s of Bright's disease and lonely in a hotel in New York. Well, so many interesting stories, Shannon. Unfortunately, we are out of time for this episode of Conservation Today. We'll have to talk again soon. We have been talking with Shannon Applegate about the Applegate Settlement in Yonkala and the Native Americans in the area. We have also been talking with Chris Ruiz, the archaeologist from the University of Oregon, doing the archaeological dig at the Applegate House. I'm your host, Francis Etherington, and this is Conservation Today.